So this morning, we're in uh, the Revelation. Uh, John has kicked off this series going through the Revelation to John, uh, John that he received on the Isle of Patmos. And so this morning, we're looking at uh, chapters 4 and 5, which are about the open heaven. So this is a sermon about access. I had, I'm sure all of you at some point have found out that you weren't invited to the party that you wish you had been invited to, or discovered that the concert that you really, really wanted to attend had already sold out before you went to get a ticket. Um, and maybe once or twice you've locked your car keys in the car on an icy day, and you wish you had access. Mary and I are friends with a couple who have uh, ten, ten children. Nine girls and one boy. And for a while, the wife's mother was living with them too. And all of this in a house with one bathroom. And the father of the family said he one time found himself third in line at the bathroom door at 4 a.m. So this is a story about longing for access and not being able to get where you want to go. And the good news is, is that Heaven is open. There is an open door. So we're, I want to read from this passage, but we're not going to um, we're not going to read the whole thing. What I decided to do is just uh, I intend to talk through the whole thing, but but um, but it would be great if you have a, a paper Bible or a or a Bible on your digital device. And actually, if, if you don't mind, no one would be you wouldn't shock anyone. There are Bibles in these baskets here if you if you wanted a, a copy of the scriptures to look at while we work through the passage. What I, we usually stand for the reading of God's Word, though I thought to maintain that, let's stand and I'll read the first verse of these two chapters. After these things, I looked, and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse that I'd heard earlier, that was like the sound of a trumpet speaking, said to me, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So we thank you, Lord, for the revelation to John, and we pray, Lord, you'd reveal yourself to us today, and we really want to see and celebrate your glory, and we want to be transformed by that. So this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the verse begins and ends with after these things, which means there's some kind of transition here. In chapters 2 and 3 that Jerron led us through last week, Jesus appeared to John and gave him messages to seven churches. These are churches that are in the western part of what's now Turkey. And Jesus is shown as present among the lampstands, and he's like walking among the churches and is assessing them. But now the scene changes. Um, you know, the, our attention is uh, moved from what's happening on earth to what's happening in heaven. And Jesus says that he's going to show John things that will take place in the future. But interestingly, what immediately follows is not about the future. It's about the it's a revelation of current realities in heaven. Um, so the foundation, the, the starting point, for understanding what's happening on earth or to understanding what's going to happen on earth is to understand <laughs> what is happening in the presence of God, what God is up to. That's the starting point. And uh, you've probably heard a lot about heaven 
Lots of people want to go there uh, eventually. They don't want to go right now. But, but you know, I think it raises a question like, what is heaven and where is it? Um, so sometimes the word heaven is just used symbolically, but when it's not, it usually refers to like one of three realms. So, for example, Jesus says, um, look at the birds of the air, or in some translations, look at the birds of the heavens. Because uh, those words are used interchangeably, translated more than one way. But for example, in Genesis 20, it says, the man gave names to all the animals and to the birds of the heavens. So, so at, at one level, heaven refers to our immediate atmosphere. Uh, but then, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, uh, stars will fall from heavens and powers of the heavens will be shaken, which is fascinating. Uh, so the, the sun, the moon, the stars are heaven. Our solar system, our galaxy, the space beyond the galaxy, that's heaven too. And actually here in, in this passage I just read, that verse from Matthew, there's this connection between objects in space and spiritual forces. Did you pick that up? There's like the stars and then there's these powers. The, the, and, and you know, um, so lots of religions have believed that, but... This is an area where actually what a lot of religions have believed and what the Bible teaches matches up. The Bible recurrently kind of makes this suggestion that there's a relationship between heavenly celestial objects and spiritual uh, forces, which is fascinating to me. So, you know, so I guess you know we're not supposed to consult astrologers. Did you know that? Yeah, we're not. But it's not because they can't tell you anything. It's because there are, there might be spiritual forces out there in heavenly realms that you should not trust. They're untrustworthy. So you consult God instead of these uh, forces. So in Hebrews uh, 4, we're told that uh, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he says, our, our Savior has passed through the heavens. And there again, it's plural, which makes clear that there's more than one. Then, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about an experience that he had uh, because the Corinthians were really impressed with, ex- they wanted to know about your experiences. And so he said, well, I know a man, and he's talking about himself. Uh, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, whether it was in the body or not in the body, I'm not really sure, but I, he went up there. I mean, I went up there, he says. And uh, this is the only place that a heaven is numbered. Um, but I think given what we saw about the other things, this kind of shows us, we, we can guess here, what, what he was caught up was to see the, the home of God, the place of his throne beyond the physical universe, or existing like proximate to us, but in some other dimension, you know, something like that. So at this point, there is such this place, and this is the heaven that our eyes are moved we move from looking at Jesus walking among churches on earth to the activity going on in this other space, the center of God's rule. Now, and, and the first thing we notice is that there is an open door. I mean, there's a door. It doesn't say, I saw a door open. There is a door standing open in heaven. And that, all by itself, it seems like very good news to me. That there's an open door. It's the door standing wide open in heaven. That's what he sees. 
And then he hears an invitation to come up through that door and to see things. And he says Jesus' voice sounds like some guy, like a trumpet talking. So, now this isn't the first time this kind of language occurs in the Bible. For example, in Ezekiel 1, I can't remember if we have this on a slide or not, but Ezekiel 1, 1, the very first verse of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, Now it came about in the thirteenth year on the fifth day of the fourth month, I was down by the river Chebar among the exiles, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now, actually, this is pretty fascinating because a whole lot of the language that Ezekiel uses when he talks about his vision of God shows up again in the Revelation. Lots of corresponding weird stuff in both Ezekiel's vision and John's, you know, (laughs) wonderfully, gloriously weird stuff. I mean, here's the thing about this is the thing I enjoy about teaching this passage or teaching from this book. It's like there's stuff that we can say for sure, and then there's glorious stuff we can't quite figure out. And, that, and I think both things are good. So, so anyway, he, he's, he, and he's, he's invited us, you know, up through this door, you know. He saw these visions. Uh, Matthew said, then there's other times, you know, uh, just these will, you'll note these. Like when Jesus was baptized, Jesus comes out, up out of the water, and what happens? The heavens open. The heavens open, a voice speaks, a dove comes down. And then there's a story uh, about Jesus talking. He sees his potential disciple. Somebody tells Nathaniel about Jesus. So Nathaniel comes to, to meet Jesus. And Jesus says to Nathaniel, oh, you're, a, you're an Israelite. You're a son of Jacob with no guile, which is kind of a tricky thing to say. It's a funny thing to say because Jacob was like really he was like, a, he was full of guile. Okay, so Jacob's full of guile. And, and, and Jacob would cheat you out of anything he could if he had the chance. Okay, so, so Jacob is, having cheated his brother who now wants to kill him, he's trying to get away. And on the way, he, he, he lies down and he has this vision of a stairway going to heaven. And there's angels going up and down on the stairway. That's wild. So, so Jesus says, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus says to this guy, you're like him, only you're more honest. And uh, he says, you're like, you're like him. And, uh, and, he, and the guy says, I'm impressed at how well you know me. And because and Jesus said, I saw you when you were under that tree. And this basically wins the guy. And Jesus says, oh, you, you think that's great? You know, you will see angels Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that's the term he used for himself. Basically, Jesus says, I am the stairway to heaven. Oh, by the way, I'm also the door, and I'm the prize on the other side of that door. You know? And, and, and so, and, and, and Jesus, and, and he told him, he told Nathaniel, you're gonna see this. Now here's what I think. I think that there's nothing special about Nathaniel. I mean, except that he was honest. But, but, but I think that Jesus intends that for all of his followers. That what we get to see is that because Jesus came down and then went back up and he created this ongoing relationship between heaven and earth that did not exist before he did that. And so Jesus is the way, the way to heaven. And, and through me, he says, Nathaniel, you're going to see this traffic. And I think, you know, this is not unique vision. So, I think it includes me. And then, and then there's another one in Acts 7, 
Stephen is being stoned to death. And, and, and as he's dying, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, usually, when you see in the visions of heaven, the, peop- the people in charge are sitting down, you know. But in this case, Jesus is standing, which I think is basically... I mean, I can't prove this. But do you mind my theory? My theory is Jesus got up to welcome this guy because he's so proud of him. You know, I'm going to get up and meet him at the door. Anyway, so anyway, there's that. So, uh, so here's a couple of verses uh, from Hebrews I wanted to share about this. Here, Hebrews 10, the author says, this is verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. What is this holy place that we're allowed access to? I think it's the open heaven that John sees. I mean, that veil which is his flesh, which was torn and gave us access to God's presence where we're invited to come and make our requests. Isn't that good? Yeah. And then in verse 9 of chapter 2 in Hebrews, he says, we see Jesus. Now, I know someday we are going to see him, like in a different way. Now we kind of see darkly. It's through a mirror. It's not absolutely clear. But I want to underline this. The author says, we see him. We do. With eyes of faith. We, we see Jesus, who was for a little while made lower than the angels that so through God's grace he should die for everyone. We see him now. Okay, this is where I want to say, say this with me. We see him now. Well, that's good news. I mean, I didn't make that up. That's in the Bible. Would you like to say it one more time? We see him now. Ho! Oh, and, and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his glorious face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So, that's that. John says in verse 2, we spent a long time in verse 1, I'll pick up the pace. Hebrews, uh, verse 2, he says, immediately, John says, I was in the spirit, which I think means his body remained on Patmos, but his spirit was taken up into heavenly realms where he saw heavenly realities. And in this vision, he sees God on the throne. So, um, he says, behold, there's a throne standing in heaven. There's one sitting on the throne, and he was sitting on it. it was like jasper stone with a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald. I like the summation of this in a, in a translation called the Complete Jewish Bible. It says, the one sitting there gleamed like diamonds and rubies, and a rainbow shining like an emerald encircled the throne. So there is a throne. And you notice that when... John describes what he sees. He does not describe God with any kind of human features. What he talks about is light and flashes of lightning. God is ruling in the perfection of his holiness and in power. And he sees the rainbow, which is a sign of God's covenant with Noah. Noah built an ark in which all of God's people, there were eight of them, were saved and protected from God's wrath against sin. And and Noah's ark, which is actually God's ark, which Noah built... uh, points to Jesus who saves his people from the wrath to come and brings them through the flood into new life. 
And God always sees the rainbow because there's his throne is surrounded by one. And God always keeps his promises. He keeps his covenants. He remembers them and he saves all who take refuge in Jesus. And this throne is a, a recurring theme throughout the revelation to John. The word occurs 38 times in the book. And the message we should get from this is that the holy and perfect creator God is ruling in every circumstance. All the time, everywhere. Now, at the time, this time in history, there were really dark clouds on the horizon for those churches that John loved and cared for. There were ominous signs of impending trouble, of persecution. But there is a king upon the throne. And that's good news. Then there is worship. Who's leading worship? Well, it is an impressive worship team. First of all, verse 4 says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the 24 thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. They had golden crowns on their heads. So, who are these people? Well, we don't know for sure. But, my favorite of the, of the guesses is that these represent the people of God in both the Old and the New Covenant. So, you know, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and Jesus appointed 12 disciples, basically to say, I'm creating a new Israel. And so, I think, you know, that these are the people of faith, the people who put their trust in God in both the Old and the New Covenant. And these these 12, these 24, represent them. So, they're, they're there, worshiping. And... Um, And then out from the throne, verse 5, came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And we're going to have to talk about those before we're through, but just not yet. Seven spirits. And those are basically coming out from God. And then, so we've got the, we've got all of those people, the, elders and then we've got these spirits and then there's four living creatures before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal and there were four living creatures who were full of eyes in front and behind and the first creature was like a lion and the second like a calf and the third like had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle the lion's strong he's the king of the jungle the ox is strong and patient and gets things done. The human is the most rational and intelligent of God's creatures, although you can't always tell that for sure. And the eagle soars high and sees broadly and moves swiftly. And so he's describing characteristics, you know. And all of these, and these living creatures, each of them had six wings and they have eyes full, eyes around and within. <laughs> Outside and inside eyes. So... More about eyes in a bit, but for now, in prophetic literature, eyes are a symbol of keen observation, understanding, and awareness. So if somebody's, and so, in any of these prophecies in the Old Testament or the New Testament, if it's got a lot of eyes, that means they know what's going on. So, day and night, the ones who know what's going on, what do they do? See, the people who know what's actually going on never cease to praise God. <laughs> they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the one who is and is to come. I mean, the people who are the closest, who've got the best vision of what's happening in heaven, can't stop praising God. They can't. They just do it. 
over and over and over again forever. So, and then when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders decide, we want in on this worship experience too. So they fall down before him and they cast their crowns before the throne. And then, I don't know how this works, because I've tried to figure out once they've cast their crowns down, then what do they do? And I don't know, maybe like when the living creatures start in on verse 2, they go pick up their crowns and go back to their seats and then get off and throw them down again. But I, I'm curious about that. I just don't know. <laughs> oh, I mean, what you know is beautiful and what you don't know is fun too. So, and they're, they're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created everything. Because of your will, they existed. Okay, so there's worship. And then the next thing, there is a scroll. This is 5.1. He sees in the right hand of God the Father, the one who's sitting on the throne, he, written on the inside, he's got, a, he's got a scroll in his hand, written on the inside and on the outside. Sealed up with seven seals. Now, they usually only wrote on one side of, of a scroll. So when it says they wrote on both sides of the scroll, it's a way of saying whatever's in there is comprehensive. Everything that needs to be in there is there. Nothing's been left out. You don't need to worry about that. It's a full, it's a comprehensive account. And then I saw a strong angel, verse two, strong, a great big loud angel, large, and, and he's got a good voice. And he yells out, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Nobody could do it. No one on heaven, nobody on the earth, nobody under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So the question pops into mind is, what is this book? Well, first of all, it's a book of books. In the scroll, there are basically seven scrolls and each section is sealed. It's a scroll with seven seals. By the way, I found out that when Romans were making wills, they would write it all out on the scroll, and then they would get seven witnesses, and each witness had his own seal. And then when it comes time for the will to be executed, all of the witnesses have to show up and break their own seal, which is pretty fascinating. So anyway, um, and, and here's the purpose of the seals on these, on these documents. It was to designate ownership, to assure the, the genuineness of the author, to protect against alteration of the contents, and to conceal until an official opening by the proper authority. I like that last one. Jesus is the one who can open the seals. He's the one who has the proper authority to do this. So, and, and, and basically, here's what I believe this, this document is. It is the book of the plans and the purposes and the judgments of Creator God. Are these things we want to know? John wanted to know them. He wanted to know them so bad that he cried when he thought he might not be able to. So, uh, William Barclay, who I was reading this last week, calls um, this the book, God's book of destiny. I mean, here's, here's what this means. God has a book in which His providential plan for the past, the present, and the future has already been written. That's glorious. It's good news. It's good news that God will never be surprised. Never be surprised. 
So, who's able to reveal God's plans and purposes and judgments? The answer is, there is a lamb. Although, the lamb appears, who is inter- the lamb who appears was actually introduced as a lion. The lion can do it, and then what do we see? The lamb. So, the lamb is the lion in this passage. And one of the elders said, stop weeping, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of Daphne, David has overcome, and he can open the book. And then I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. He's got seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, so throughout the prophets, over and over again, seven is basically the number of completion. That's how many days there are in a week. It means when there's seven, it's over and you start over again. So this is the number of completion. So if the the lamb has seven horns, and horns are basically a recurring symbol of power, that means the lamb is perfect in power. And the lamb has seven eyes, which we saw are a symbol of keen observation and understanding. And so having seven eyes means the the lamb sees everything clearly. And that's true of Jesus, by the way. He doesn't miss anything. And then the seven eyes, it says, are also the seven spirits of God, which means that the Lamb sees clearly because he's gifted and empowered completely by the Holy Spirit. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit, but I've never been filled with the Holy Spirit as much as Jesus was always filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, always, all the time. So, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect in, what are the, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Jesus is perfect in love, perfect in joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's got it all to the max. And uh, so this thing about the seven spirits is pretty interesting, and I just want to draw out a little bit more here, because, because some of you may know this, but there's a prophecy of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 11, and it begins with these words. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So, next slide. This is what we saw in that verse. A bunch of spirits. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. There's seven, right? So basically, now... But he's not saying, these are not distinct spirits, but he's describing the sevenfold activity of the Holy Spirit. And, and in the prophets, priests and, and ki- prophets, priests and kings were set a, apart by anointing with oil to, to symbolize like this outpouring of grace that would come on them that was necessary for them to fulfill the obligations of the responsibilities given to them. And Jesus, the Lamb, is filled with the Spirit and he's perfect in wisdom, and perfect in understanding, and perfect in counsel, and perfect in strength, and perfect in knowledge, and his fear of God is perfect. And uh, so, he came, the Lamb came, and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense. A harp represents praise. The, the golden bowls of incense are prayers. And they sing, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. 
For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they'll reign upon the earth. So Jesus holds the book. He can break its seals. There's no promise here that Jesus will reveal to us everything we would like to know. But he can and will reveal to us everything we need to know. And he reveals to us that the plan that God had before time for the earth and for those of us made in his image was that we would end up being priests and kings in the earth. So that's pretty good. Your future's bright. In in response to this, the angels exalt the Lamb. He said, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the elders and the living creatures. They were all joining in. And the number of this was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Singing, or saying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I love this. I mean, who's worshiping here? Let's see. The angels, the living creatures, the elders, all the church. And every created thing. Blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever to him who sits on the throne. And whenever we say those things, guess what? The living creatures keep saying, Amen, Amen. And the elders keep falling down and worshiping and throwing their hats off. Who worships? Everybody. Everybody. And whom do they worship? The king on the throne and the Lamb of God who when you look real close, looks like he's had his throat cut. Because he was the sacrifice for us. So, well, I had fun doing that. But I did wonder, first of all, you know, I just really want to celebrate these the open door. That there's now an open door. There's access to heaven that Jesus came and became a stairway that leads to heaven and that grace comes down from him and by him and returns back to God through him. So they're basically in in these early chapters of, of the revelation, there's three doors. I want to just look at these before we close. First of all, in Revelation one, he says, after this, I, I looked and there's a door standing open in heaven. So we've, we're celebrating that. We've got access to God. We, we can see Jesus. We're, in some sense, like already there. We're in Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly realms. It doesn't take much imagination to picture yourself there because, in a sense, we're there. We're there. And then, and then the second passage, Revelation 3.8 where he says to a church, I've put an open door in front of you that nobody's able to shut. I know you don't have a lot of power, but you've kept my word. And and this was to a specific church, but I feel like in some sense, a church could claim it. Because I absolutely believe that wherever the people of God gather in his name and turn their hearts toward him and commit themselves to one another and to his cause, there is a door open for opportunity. A door for something to happen. And I believe 
that it's possible that God has put in front of us an opportunity to bring good news to people who are in serious trouble. And he wants he wants to show us how to walk through those those maybe even more than one door, multiple opportunities to go out and find a way to tell people how great the Savior is. So I just want I'm praying as I was working on this, I was just praying, God, lead us into those doors of opportunity that you might put in front of us. But then the second door is this one. Where. He says, uh, or no, that's that's door number three. We did one and two. Door number three, where he says, be zealous and repent. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and, and him with me. And I just think this one's this one's more personal. It's it's um, it's an invitation to personal communion with Jesus. Like like I'll come in and we will hang out. And we'll have tea and cookies and we'll talk about whatever we need to talk about. This is what this is the invitation. Now, the, now the path into that involves repentance. Basically, you got to you got to say, I'm not focusing on. Repentance really boils down to reorientation. We think of it as being sorrowful for sin, and that's true. But it has every bit as every bit as much about what you turn toward as what you turn from. So repentance is basically reorienting yourself to focus on the on this glorious king our savior we repent we turn from sin it's terrible sin's awful but the good part about repentance is what we're turning toward where we're fixing our eyes who we're inviting to come and fellowship with us and us with him let's do that let's be sure we do that